Hello and welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. You're listening to the podcast for people who want to learn about the government market from the contracting officer's perspective. If you are a contracting officer, we hope to give you a little more insight into industry's perspective. Our mission is to make government contracting better one contract at a time. In today's episode, we host our first guest on the podcast. Michael Fischetti, the executive director of the National Contract Management Association, stopped by the studio to talk about the state of training and education for contracts professionals. Since we're talking NCMA, don't forget World Congress, NCMA's largest training event of the year. The 2015 event will be held in Dallas, Texas from July 26th to 29th. All right, let's get started with part one of our conversation with Michael Fischetti. Hey, Kevin. This is great. We're actually in the same room recording a podcast. In 3D! Not looking at each other through the Skype cameras. And today happens to be our first podcast guest. So in the room with us, we have Michael Fischetti, the Executive Director of the National Contract Management Association, which we will refer to as NCMA from here on because it's too long to say that the rest <laughs> of it. But today, we're here to talk about education and training for contracts professionals and get some outside viewpoint from one of the experts. We are. This is going to be kind of fun. We're going to be learning as we go. And uh, it's kind of cool to have not only the two of us, but the, but three of us in the room. And we'll, we'll see where the conversation goes. So, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And let's talk about the NCMA's concept of professionalism in the contracts management field. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I... Uh... Had a 30-some year career in government contracting, was a GS-5 at TACOM way back in the day, from there to NAVAIR, and then uh, spent some time in industry and two or three civilian agencies, and uh, rose all the way up, ended up a senior executive, retired from DOD in 2012, and uh, I was a chapter leader, Washington, D.C. president, and various capacities at the volunteer level, uh, got my CPCM, and then... Uh, fooled them all, and I was on the national board and What's, got this gig as executive time director. Out. What's CPCM stand for? <laughs> CPCM, Certified Professional Contracts Manager. Okay. Nice. Keep going. So, uh, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. I'm uh, almost three years into the job and really enjoying it. Contract management is a, is a, is a, is a profession that I think we all uh, aspire. We all, a lot of us aren't sure what that is. Most of us fell into the profession. It wasn't something necessarily was on the foremost of our minds in high school, playing with our blocks and toy soldiers. <laughs> we ended up being contracting people usually through a referral. We heard about it from a friend or a relative, or we're working at a company or agency and we learned about it. And, you know, what is this whole 1102 thing? Uh, I remember when I <laughs> interviewed for the job, they said, hey, you know, contracting is good. You're never going to get riffed. And they were, there's never enough of them and there's always a demand. So. <laughs> So, uh, so what would you want to be when you grew up? You obviously didn't, didn't like Kevin and I, you, you didn't grow up saying, I'm going to be a contract. I wanted officer. to be a disc jockey, uh, on an AM rock station. Well, this you know where fitting. that industry is today. <laughs> right. so, Good choice. What man. do you call this? A podcast? Okay. So that, there you go. So I, I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, ended up getting a degree later on. But, um, once I got into contracting, really enjoyed it, but, uh, it's a profession that none of us aspire to be it's something that's and that's a concern we're not aware of it earlier enough in time and so sometimes it is your plan b i was actually a customs inspector and uh, yeah. moved into contracting yeah most of the people i know that that even had contracts on their their career horizon had a family member like like a parent that was a, yeah. a contracting person acquisition person anyway yeah. it was my wife in this case yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was 1102 at take home and so 
Yeah. I, I, I had an uncle that brought me in. Um, yeah. that, that he worked at, at Wright Pat and he said, when I got out of college and didn't have a job, yeah. he said, Hey, there's an intern program if your grades are good yeah. enough. And luckily they were. Yeah. And so I got into the, the copper cap intern program. And that's actually where Kevin and I met yeah. was, was that you didn't dream of being a contracts person when you were. No, actually it was, it's interesting that, uh, I, I fell into it from the perspective. It sounded like a cool job. And what I liked about it is that there, it isn't one thing. Yeah. And the term contracts doesn't really lay into your, your part negotiator, part attorney, part writer, part reviewer, part problem solver, part, your part artist. Cause you're putting pieces together. So it's within a month, I realized this is, this is more than just managing contracts. So let's talk about the NCMA's concept of professionalism in the contracting profession. Yeah. Our whole goal, our whole vision is to advance the contract management profession. Uh, and f- as we just kind of talked about, it is sort of a profession that is sometimes mis- misunderstood. Uh, it's not as visible, and people don't know what it is. You know, if you talk to your family or members, you know, what do you do for a living? It doesn't necessarily re- resonate home. I'm a contract professional. I work for this agency, and I acquire things. And, you know, you either come across sounding like you're simplified, uh, either like you're, it's a much ado about nothing, or people just don't understand. What you're, you're a contractor, so you like like put decks on people's houses. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Well, we have these regulations and it's like, well, what's so hard? You go and you buy it. Right. You know? Yeah. So, so it's kind of a concern that, uh, and, and as we all know, it's a very complex profession. It's become ever more complex. Our government is ever more outsourced to the point where contractors are, are performing many ma- basic vital missions on behalf of the federal government and state and local as well. So our concept is about developing a community offering credentials, learning, information, networking, and advocacy for the profession itself. And so those are the tenets of, of NCMA. And sometimes the first step is just, you know, understanding and, and viewing yourself as a professional. You know, I think we, our profession tends to have, uh, you know, an inferiority complex about itself sometimes, <laughs> you know. And, you know, if you're doing it well, it's, it's a very difficult, complex job, as we all know. Yeah. I, that that's perfect. So let's go back to one of the tenants is we're here to today to talk about learning. And I, I always like to give, give an outline, an agenda, even though we're a little deeper in than, than when I usually do this, but we're going to talk about the learning component of professionalism and the way the NCMA views it. We usually introduce what acquisition time zone we, are we in, but with a special guest here and a special topic, this is a zoneless conversation. This doesn't, this applies to all zones. It's how you get better at the contracting acquisition profession. We're going to talk about why this is important to understand. We always cover why should the government care and why should industry care about training and education. So here's my question is we, we go through professionalism, right? One of the questions we had in here is what, what form of contracting training should contract managers receive? But because of where you are, you're seeing a lot of, of the training that's happening. Right, and we have a perception from we've we've taken DAU courses, all that kind of stuff. But what kind of training do you do you see that they're getting? Yeah, and government industry. This issue has been grappling, as you know, years and years. Uh, every reform, every committee, every everybody that ever looks at acquisition reform or changing contracting, or you know, coal, there's been various commissions over the time. There's another bill been introduced in the uh, Senate to do the same thing again this year acquisition training is always part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think over the years, every time there's a problem in contracting, every time a a project blows up or there's a cost overrun, the response is, oh, we need more training, throw another class onto the pile, you know, at DAU and that sort of thing. So training is, is to me, one aspect. There's education 
And, and when we talk about training and education, we're, all, we're not just talking about learning more about the FAR and all the tools that are available to you in, in that or your, your FARSUP or un, understanding U1B policy, but it's about, you know, you hear the words now, critical thinking and developing a professional uh, view towards uh, a problem and how to, how to solve a complex problem in today's world. So education is everything from online to networking to, you know, supporting a professional association to uh, pursuing advanced education, uh, on-the-job experiences, exposing yourself to different types of uh, in, you know, environments and people. To me, it's all of the above, and that's where NCMA tries to lead us, you know. So uh, there's a lot of different schools of thought in education and training, and there's been a lot of things tried in recent years, whether it's, you know, online, we, you know, uh, I can remember, you know, uh, you know, DAU went into really big into online programs. In some cases, they've had to retract a little bit to, to offer more of that collaboration between students. So it's, it's a complex field. And there's no easy answer, but uh, NCMA is for all of the above. But I can certainly talk about more about what we think works and what doesn't. What, yeah, what, what do you think is... I don't know if the term most effective applies, but what, what have you seen to be most effective? Is, is it the interaction one-on-one, like being in 3D? Yeah, I think so. Uh, believe it or not, uh, you know, in all, the, all this technology and all the changes that have occurred in recent years, um, World Congress continues to grow, for example, online, you know, face-to-face, despite all the, uh, the, the hoop about, you know, conferences and scandals that occurred at certain agencies and that our events grow. They want the interaction. They, you bet. You know, they want that interaction. And, you know, you can't, you just can't beat that running into folks, you know, or meeting colleagues, you know, in the hallways or what have you and having that interaction. And I think that's true at the classroom level too, not just at NCMA or other, but other schools as well. You know, it's that, uh, walking away with, you know, hey, I met some colleagues. I'm part of a greater universe of professionals, all of whom have similar challenges to mine. You know, you can change the terms or the acronyms, but a lot of contract professionals work in your work, whether you work in a GSA or Boeing or, uh, you know, Suntiva, you know, you have small, small business or in that, you have the same challenges in one way or another. Yeah, I, th- I think the contract profession is, is interesting. They're, they're on the government side, especially. There's lots of contracts professionals that have been in the business 20, 30, 40 years. So the way they were trained and the way their jobs are done now are completely different. So the way that they best receive training, it's it's very difficult yeah. for an organization like like the Defense Acquisition University, DAU, that, that, that does training for the DOD side for civilians and military. It's difficult for them to say, hey, we're going to give a training class that appeals to somebody that's in their twenties that's entering the profession and someone that's in their fifties that's been in the profession for a long time, but needs to know a new topic that requires training. Mm-hmm. They're going to absorb, they're going to absorb the information in a different way. And so to, it, it's, it's got to be a huge task to figure out what's the best way to, yeah. to get that information across. We, this uh, podcasting, for instance, that's, that's, mm-hmm. it's a new way of receiving information. Is it training? Can it be training? I guess it, it could be training, but it's not based current. on the downloads. Somebody right, thinks right. it's training, <laughs> but it's not. It's not. It's not viewed in the same Correct. way as yeah. as I, I attended this course. But it is the way that some people today absorb information. So how how do you how do you train the professional that's been in the the business for forty years and still has paper files for everything versus the the professional that's come in well, it, it, on industry or, or government side that that has everything filed electronically and is perfectly happy never touching a piece of paper. And this is a great moment to engage the listener and ask them, what, what is your favorite way to get it? 
Yeah. Because my, my favorite way to get it is, is I'm an audio learner, which is coincidental that we ended up with the podcast, right? I remember things much more effectively by hearing them, but I also pick them up in 3D. And, but there may be people that love the online part of it. So I'm curious to, see, to hear from the, I think we're up to 1,400 people who listen on average to each one of these podcasts. But the, I'd ask you guys who are listening, what, what has been the most beneficial to you as far as what kind of training do you like? Because this is kind of a unique spot for us to ask you. Yeah, the direct feedback. plea for information. That's yeah, good. There you go. We'll get used to that. <laughs> so so that's, there's, there's many forums between the podcast and NCMA mm-hmm. that if you post your opinion on what's the best way to receive your preferred method to receive training on any of those forums. We can all learn something and maybe, maybe, maybe help it go better in the future. Put it on Twitter and tag us and we'll see what happens. (laughs) I resemble some of those remarks, you guys. Like I remember, uh, you know, I took the four week basic class. Uh, I guess con 90 might be the uh, predecessor. It might be the course that it's called now, but you know, you sat in this dingy windowless conference room in, uh, at uh, army tank automotive command in Warren, Michigan, you know, the kind with in the dead you know, of winter holes, with no sunlight, right? <laughs> holes in the wall where the signs fell down those motivational posters that everybody puts about, you know, perseverance and, you know, you know, maybe a picture of a tank or a truck or something, an army vehicle. And, you know, and we literally went through the FAR page by page, page you know, part by part, um, I guess I was exposed to the FAR that way. And, and you know, this was pre-automation. And there is, a, there is a room for that today. And I believe they went online. And now a lot of that basic stuff is back in face-to-face. They felt that was much more uh, beneficial. But I, I do find a lot of new programs or initiatives in contracting, you know, pick a term, you know, category management or whatever, probably is something we've always been responsible to do, just didn't do it. So it's really more like of a highlight or back, if you look at better buying power, it's kind of a back to basics in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. we need to bring back cost and pricing skills or, you know, professionalism and all the things that we have always been responsible to do, but maybe we get set in our ways, you know, we just start cranking out task orders and, you know, using a GWAC over and over again or a schedule or, you know, uh, so it, it's making sure you're aware of all the breadth that's out there of which it's quite quite huge right so contracting might not change quickly or at all contracting is contracting but the 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 method that with of how you get that done has changed and and will always change so that's the that's where the timing of the training comes in yeah is it is it a fire hose at the beginning to learn the entire far hey you're gonna there's 52 chapters start reading or is it is it you learn what you need to know now and where to look up things in the FAR and you end up later on going to classes that are specific to whatever role you're playing in the, in the acquisition stream. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the things that jumps out at me is we did a screencast of the uh, FAR site. And if you, if some, we had some, we did a webinar earlier this week and, and one of the members in our group actually asked a question, what's the best part of the FAR to know by hand, the know by heart. And my answer was, well, it, it depends. Typical contracting officer, it depends. What, what, what industry are you in? What kind of contracts, et cetera. But my real answer was the most powerful skill, honestly, is to know how to find the information. So if you're a black belt on the Hill FAR site and you can find that stuff quickly, because by the way, it changes. But on top of that, we joke about the fact that FAR part 49 terminations we've taken, I bet the, between the three of us, we've probably taken a couple hundred hours of training on that. Yeah. And I never terminated a contract. So yeah. was it, in an hour I could have learned, okay, FAR part 49 is where I go. Yeah. If this comes up next, yeah. I can remember so, a funny story. I was at Nav Air uh, and we were, uh, you know, and I was on the F-14 program, you know, Tom Cruise and, you know, <laughs> missiles and, you know, ex, you know, if there was a time where, you know, you really felt 
you know, pretty proud. You know, that was certainly a program to feel proud of. Uh, I can remember they were running around the literally running around the halls like we have to do a small purchase. And, and they couldn't find anyone at the Naval Air Systems Command at that time, and I won't say the time, but, you know, that knew how to do what we would now call simplified acquisition, so to your point, you know, or schedules. You know, I could buy an airplane, but I don't know how to buy a pencil. You know, so, uh, and that's how contracting is. <laughs> we resemble is, that you know? comment sometimes. <laughs> so, you, you know, getting to your point, it's, it's good to move around. It's good to have a variety of experiences to make yourself as marketable as a professional as you can and as most valuable to your organization because you never know what the requirement is. And that probably gets to the point where we get criticized sometimes, contracts people do, of doing the same thing over and over. You know, like, okay, uh, the three-year contract's coming to an end. You know, somebody get the old RFP, you know, let's paste it over, you know, uh, check the clauses, have any of them changed, reissue it. You know, almost non-thinkingly. Yeah, if you if you're on the industry side, it's not a surprise when you get an RFP that when you're reading every word, but you can tell the acquisition team hasn't because it has a date from last time, or, <laughs> or, has, or it has, has an acronym from a different program yeah, somewhere somewhere buried in there. And they, I've done they, that. They, yep. they missed that one. Somebody yeah. forgot to white out the signature on the contract. <laughs> the Never had it one go that far. Yeah, and one of the challenges I see is that this going back to doing things where we've always done them, sometimes we homogenize the acquisition process and particularly the contract. Like I got into, I've mentioned this before, but this debate of, well, if we standardized X, like the, the greatest example would be these commodity, what are they, the commodity councils, where it's like, we should buy everything in the entire Air Force from this one contract system. Yeah. And my argument to that, which I put out publicly, is that economies of scale works for companies like you know, Toyota that has a 100-year contract with yeah. their steel manufacturer. Yeah. We don't operate that way. So the economies of scale, while they're there, they're not the same. Yeah. And I was curious, of, do you see this, this push? Do we, keep, we have to keep getting more and more bigger, bigger, bigger assumption? Yeah. And well, it's a, real, it's, a, it's a conflict uh, with other goals that we have in mind, too, with socioeconomic and small business and that. So, you know, if category management was ultimately successful and the government knew every throughout the entire government what was going to be bought and when and we could certainly make huge mega contracts that, you know, would drive prices down on a, on a per unit cost, but uh, probably drive companies out of business. So how do you, how do you uh, equate that? So that's, that's the tension and it's an endless debate, you know, uh, GSA, I, I, you know, I know they want to, they're getting really, you know, getting more involved in supporting OMB initiatives on category management and things like that. Uh, being America's buyer, um, you know, they were set up in the math, you know, the mass program schedule program was mm-hmm. set out to, to be able to procure a variety of things and a variety of ways. Uh, the debate the discussion, of course, has been about, you know, well, are those prices, how fair and reasonable are those prices? And DOD, you know, issued this DFAR waiver, you know, said, you know, you, you're going to check those prices before you just accept whatever the contractor gives you. So that's goes on and on, you know. So uh, I think the, the, you know, the key is, though, at least as a, from a training perspective, is knowing what we're talking about and understanding all those views and making the choice. I went I went for a FAR 15 versus a you know, schedule award versus three or four GWACs where I could have got this part or, or service. And, but here's why. This is, you know, that's the market research side, in my opinion, is, you know, under discussed. You know, we're always focusing on the process once the RPs hit the street or, you know, but, you know, it takes too long and too many protests. But all the real work ought to be done during the acquisition planning yeah. phase. Thank you. You, yep. you foot. Write that down. Yes. Our the, main... the acquisition time zone number two, market that, research. That's one of our, we, we try to say that all the time that, that the time you spend up front doing that market research is it saves you time in the yeah. end. So yeah. I, I want to circle back guys. Uh, Michael, you touched, you, you got right on the edge of a, <laughs> a concept that I, I, I think we should talk about. And that's depth versus breadth in education. And, 
you, the reason that at, you got right on the edge and, and then we went another direction, but the reason I want to bring it back I is the conversation. Well, what you said was, it was perfect. Like you, you were talking about buying a system versus buying a pencil. There was no one that knew how to buy it by the pencil. So there's, there's the depth versus breadth argument in a nutshell. If you, if everyone is, is deep in systems acquisition, when you need to buy a pencil, you're in trouble because then they want to do a, a far part 15 competition with a 20 page management volume on, on just to deliver pencils. But you, so you need people that have the breath to understand all the possible different ways you can go about the acquisition. But if all you have is people that know all the possible ways you can do it, you don't have anybody that can buy an F14. Not that you want to buy an F14 anymore, but yeah. it, it's the different than now, yeah, it's, it's, it's different than buying a commodity. Right. So, so where where is the balance between depth, depth and breadth? It should I think it's gone back and forth over time. It's it's a cyclical thing. But do do we need to be specialists? Do we need to be generalists? Do we need? Does everyone need to be right in the middle? Do we need people that are a career path that is a specialist path versus a generalist path? Because I feel that the education is is targeted towards the generalist. So it's mandatory training that the specialist track may not ever, ever need. I think it's like any profession. You know, I think you have to start off with that breath, you know, uh, taking those general courses. What is the FAR? What are all the options available in, in terms of meeting contract requirements? If you're, large, if you're fortunate enough to be at a large organization, particularly a government one, where you can have a on-the-job rotation type of program. I was, uh, I was fortunate. I was at, you know, a couple of places where they had rotations and no... Uh, you you would move into this division, then you'd move over to this section that was doing some types of different types of procurement, and uh, your that person you worked for didn't have the authority to keep you. <laughs> you know they had to let you go because they didn't own you yet. You know you moved, right. to, so you went to a different bunch of different offices. Like when I say I was on the F fourteen, well I started off in the in the bowels of Navier working in the services section, and then moved to different divisions, and then ended up on you know on a major weapon system. You know or uh, so that's that's very helpful. I, I would you know I think ideally. Uh, if we are a true profession across government, especially and industry, I think uh, an, an, even an industry rotation would be invaluable to make true professionals. And then eventually, you do have to specialize. You know, you do have to. You know, you're gonna you're gonna be working somewhere, and they tend to buy the same things. And you know, you have to be you know attuned to that. But I think in the early years, it's key to be able to move around. Like an, an on the job training, I think is as important. So I guess I, I guess I go for breath early. Uh, later on depth, like, like an attorney, everybody, you know, every lawyer goes to an ABA accredited law school and the curriculum more or less are identical. It's the same thing. Whether you go to the Sears and Roebuck school or Harvard, you're going to get the same coursework and then you're going to go off and, and, you know, you get into corporate law, family law, whatever. And I think the same is true in contracting. Eventually you might have, you might have to specialize in schedules or, or, uh, or, 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 you know, weapon systems or, you know, sole source, you know, cost and price debt, understanding all of that. You ought to know what it is though. You shouldn't be a GS 1102 or a senior contract manager and not understand cost and pricing data and concepts of negotiation and teamwork and that sort of thing. I wonder if the education system views it the same way. I mean, it's been a year, it's been a long time since I've had formal government training anyway, but I don't remember having the choice to specialize in, in the training later, later on the, the, it was still, still more generalist classes, but I, I love, I love the point you make. I, Kevin and I were both copper cap interns with the air force. And the whole thing was the first four years, they give you four different jobs doing four completely different kinds of contracting. And you figure out 
what kind you like the best. You know, you, you, you build, build a network and you get to experience different things. You get a little bit of breath. You're, you're there. A year is, is barely long enough to really learn what you're doing, but you at least get exposed to it and you can start to, to decide what you want to do to specialize. I, I loved systems acquisition. I loved buying big airplanes and being a part of a giant systems acquisition. Our friend Shelly loved operational contracts. She couldn't stand the snail's pace of systems yeah. acquisition. Same, we're in the exact same intern program, but ended up yeah. learning that we like completely different things. And I, I think that's in, invaluable as you go along to know, to know what the other pieces are that you might be missing. Yeah. I can remember, yeah, Navair, I mean, I, I was, you know, when you got to that big program, my job was labor. So I spent six months reviewing uh, proposals on labor and running learning curve analyses and, you know, spreadsheets, you know, uh, I didn't look at the FAR <laughs> for months, you know, you were just <laughs> developing the position for our, you know, advanced acquisition contract, you know, looking back on it, it was great education training, you know, uh, but looking back on it, I was completely unqualified to do a small purchase <laughs> or, you know, uh, if GS had said, would you like this job? I says, well, I don't know how to do what you do. You know, so that's it awesome. gets back to that, that point, I guess. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, what's, what's interesting, the, the thing I like about the career field is you can touch lots of different things. And this is a, an interesting thing about it, where you end up, like you said, the agency you end, the office you end up in is one thing. I actually chose the agency based on all the different things I could touch because I worked there for a lot of large systems programs and then I worked in operational base. I like the speed of operational contracts. I like being able to work things faster, but they weren't. And I'm not trying to offend those of you who do operational contracting, but the stuff wasn't sexy enough. So when I went to Special Operations Command, I got to buy under the speed of of essentially operational type contracts. I had lots of source selections, buying everything from body armor to services to vehicles because SOCOM, that agency, bought everything right there. Whereas if you worked for if you worked at Wright Patterson in the systems, you're either buying this aircraft, this aircraft, or this aircraft. So as a, as a person building your career, that's what I just made this up while we're talking here. I realized that think about what agency you want to be in because that agency is going to drive what kind of stuff. When you mentioned the GSA, if you like that kind of work, and GSA is an obvious example, but there are, there are well, I think there are 186 different agencies that buy stuff and they each have their own little culture and they each buy things in different ways. And as a trainee, if you get trained by the Air Force to do things a certain way, there's an agency out there might be a good fit for you. So that gets back to your point. I mean, I like, you know, the FACC program was, I think the original intent was that, you know, you could be picked up from one agency and plopped down in another and you're, you're already trained and, you know, to work in a variety of areas over time that, you know, we've seen the diversion, you know, you got the, you know, you got a defense set of requirements and federal, you know, and recognizing the differences. But I think getting back to if there was some sort of wider OJT where people could move around and be exposed to different things and then have that, you know, that then decide where you want to specialize. It's a, that'd be a perfect world, but that would require far more centralization and coordination within government agencies than uh, we have seen, of course, you know, uh, just look at the strategic sourcing as an example. Yeah. (laughs) Like every, I've worked in several agencies and companies and I would have to say, that the word unique came up in every place I ever worked, you know? Yeah. Well, we're a little different we than the rest of them. We're, spe- we're special. We're unique. Well, there's talk of ha- having a special IT f- version of the FAR, you know? And uh, I, worked in, I worked in IT-oriented organizations, and it's still a contract. It's yeah. a different co- service. It's a different commodity. It's a different line item on, on schedule in Section B. But it's, you know, 
still the same stuff. Uh, you know, obviously each commodity and service is unique and has its own special needs. And, but that's what different contract types are for to, to, right. to tail your, uh, you know, your program for that. If this was a video podcast, you would have seen me just fall down with my head in my hands <laughs> when you talked about it. A, a, a new, new part of the floor. Just right. We need more. Yeah. Uh, I agree with the idea of you start with, uh, with a generalist and, I guess my counter to that was is we need I think we really need a lot less generalists than we get mm-hmm. because going back to the contract contracting officer podcast is all about being one inch wide and a mile deep yeah. and once people figure out okay here are all the things I could do and then pick one and then craft their if they could they could craft their training around I want to be I love service contracts like I'm not, I'm not saying I let's say the person like Shelly Shelly loves service contracts and she spent. She targeted opportunities around the idea of this is what I want to get really, really awesome at. And so that whole idea of is it possible for DAU to customize the training or for anybody for that matter to say, if you want to learn about this, you're never going to have a job in construction contracts. Yeah. I feel sorry for DAU. They're always trying to be all things to all people. And, and, they, and they kind of have to. They're forced into yeah. solve everything. That's, right. It's a tough right. job. Okay, that's it for part one of our conversation with Michael Fischetti. Stay tuned for part two, where we get deeper into the role of the contracting professional and what they can do to improve the acquisition process. I'd also like to tell you a little bit more about World Congress. NCMA will host over 1,600 contract management, procurement, and acquisition professionals between July 26th and 29th in Dallas, Texas. This is a four-day training event that includes keynote addresses, panel discussions, and a customizable suite of breakout sessions. It's a great opportunity for government and industry to have open dialogue and network. If you're interested in attending, the website is ncmaworldcongress.org. As always, thanks for listening. And if you have questions, comments, or complaints, go to our website at contractingofficerpodcast.com, hit contact, and let us know what you think.